listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, welcome to Belaboured Live, end of the worst year ever edition, um, episode 212 of Belaboured, and we thought it would be good to wrap up this awful year with three of our favorite people um, to talk about the year and you know, I think most of you probably agree that this year has fundamentally changed most people's relationship to an experience of work, um, brought about some exciting labor militancy, and also had some really, really frightening consequences for working people. Not least um, today, I believe we passed the awful milestone of 300,000 people dead in this country. Um, so, yeah, um, since we've only got about an hour and a half or so, there's probably a lot we won't get to cover, but we will leave time for your questions. Um, and just one last thing before we begin, we know that literally everybody in the world is asking for your money at the end of the year. Um, and so we are doing that too. Um, I'm sorry, I know it's been a really hard year for a lot of people. Um, but while we have you here, the kind of research and reporting we put into Belabored, plus paying our excellent editor, who is on this call as well, um, takes money and time that we've been investing in this project for years and that we have never put behind a paywall. We can't keep doing it and making it free for people if some of you who can afford to support us don't help support us, um, which you can do now at patreon.com slash belabored as well at as at the Descent Magazine website, descentmagazine.org. Um, so, in other words, um, please give us your money. We love you. <laughs> anyway, our wonderful panel for this evening that I'm very, very excited to introduce you, to you um, is Rebecca Dixon, who is the Executive Director of the National Employment Law Project, where she was previously a policy analyst, senior staff attorney, and deputy program director. Her areas of expertise include occupational segregation, unemployment insurance, and workplace equity. And at NELP, she aims to contribute to a strong workers' movement that dismantles structural racism, eliminates economic inequality, and builds worker power. Bill Fletcher Jr. has been active in workplace and community struggles, worked for quite a few labor unions in addition to serving as a senior staff person in the national AFL-CIO. He is the former president of TransAfrica Forum in the leadership of several other projects, the co-author of The Indispensable Ally and of Solidarity Divided, and the author of They're Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions. And Jane McAlevey is this, the nation's strikes correspondent, an organizer, author, and scholar, and a senior policy fellow at the University of California at Berkeley's Labor Center. Her most recent book, A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for Democracy, is out now from HarperCollins, and she is also the author of the excellent No Shortcuts and Raising Expectations and Raising Hell. And with that, I'm gonna hand it over to Michelle to start us on questions. To start off with, I guess I just wanted to uh, present the entire panel uh, with one broad question. So we're nearing the end of the year. Um, we've had some pretty grim uh, developments uh, in terms of both the impact of the pandemic public health-wise, uh, as well as in the economy. But we are seeing, uh, interestingly, some uh, odd green shoots appearing now with the um, uh, implementation of the vaccine. Um, how would you feel that... Uh, the pandemic has affected the issues that you work on and organize around? Um, and particularly, how do you feel that the campaigns that you've worked on this year have um, had to adapt to the situation that we're all living through right now? Jane? 
Boy, there's a lot, you know, from 2020. Um, and partly, I think I'm nervous to say that it partly reinforces a lot of things that I generally think um, that need to be done, more like in the need to be done category um, or the what's to be done category. Um, I think a lot of, I think a lot of something that many of us have talked about uh, and that Bill and I, when we worked together at the AFL-CIO many centuries back, um, worked on significantly, which is the question of the central role of popular adult political education um, in the work that we do uh, is has always been crucial. Um, and if if the vote share that we saw that went to the uh, murderous grifter uh, party versus the others um, doesn't reveal how serious the political education crisis is. I'm not sure, frankly, what uh, what will. So, um, but I find myself essentially thinking about if there's a lot of categories as an organizer. My organizer brain is thinks in categories all the time, um, and the categories that I'm struck by right now are essential workers, uh, non-essential workers, kind of in the way. Uh, people and then cancerous uh, members of our society, which are basically shareholders and top CEOs. Um, and I've been trying to like reorient my thinking into them and prioritize labor market attacks on their sectors based on that um, new grid. I'm kind of kidding, but not really. Um, I think it's been a really, really impossibly difficult year. Um, I'll close by saying just in terms of this opening round, you know, I spent a, a lot of the beginning of the year focused on working with a team of educators in California, really focused on something called Proposition 15, which was an incredibly important ballot initiative um, to tax the rich. I think we had a very, very good chance of passing it. I believe had there not been a pandemic that actually would have passed it based on the tightness of the numbers. Um, but when I think about how the pandemic affected the work, uh, things like the calculation of the way we win is on the doors in tough fights like that and how how on the doors was stripped from one of our mechanisms was really substantial and serious. Um, and it, and it, and it means so many things going forward. And the, and the very last opening line I'll say is I'm as committed to rebuilding the strike muscle as I ever have been, as I think the electoral system is so deeply problematic. Um, it doesn't mean we abandon it, right? Never believe that, but I believe that so much of what has to happen in the near term is going to take place outside of the electoral arena to create the space and build the power to then re-engage the electoral arena in a more meaningful way. Uh, Bill? Uh, 2020 um, is the September 11th of our era. Everything changed. And I think that what Jane was just saying um, about the impact on the election uh, is something that not enough people have spoken about, that it, it really it derailed the ground strategy of the Democrats uh, in a very fundamental way. And it didn't for the Republicans because Republicans didn't believe that there was a pandemic. Um, so there was that. Uh, I think that 2020 was also where we saw there is no longer an, a question in the, in the minds of any sane leftists that there is a right-wing populist movement that has a fascist core that represents a fundamental danger. Up until August, there were still many segments of the left that thought, well, you know, it really doesn't matter ultimately whether 
Trump or Biden wins, they're both bad. I mean, that position holds no credibility anymore. It's one of those moments when you can just like laugh somebody out of existence because they're co- completely irrelevant. Uh, we've seen a mass movement that many people denied could ever exist in this country again. Um, and uh, it's here and it's armed. Uh, so, so we're in a situation in the movement as a whole, including the uh, trade union movement, of really rethinking the, the entire fight for power. And unfortunately, and we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, later, the bulk of organized labor is paralyzed. So I will jump in next and move us to more of a policy discussion. Um, so in terms of the impact on our work, um, we really uh, focused on urgent needs uh, for working families. So unemployment insurance and um, worker health and safety were two things that were um, that pretty much exploded for us this year. Um, as you can imagine, based on the fact that so many workers are having to show up at jobs and take risks. Um, There is no uh, federal protection for workers uh, and no COVID-19 standard that they can hold their employers to. And so we've been working to get states to actually pass those and protect their workers. But it is a precarious situation. And the pandemic is just kind of shining a light on what's already been there. And then in unemployment insurance, we saw that uh, there was a crush of claims. And I think um, with the size of claims the way they were, that no state agency would have been able to do that flawlessly. But the fact that we hadn't invested in the information technology infrastructure um, really did show up in the way that people were being delayed in terms of getting their payments. Um, In some states, folks still can't reach anyone on the telephone. um, And that is our only program in terms of providing uh, replacement of wages um, in a situation like this. And so just seeing that that program is not ready. And then I I think seeing that the enhancements, some of the enhancements that Congress made have expired. And so the additional $600 um, was really meaningful to workers in terms of trying to pay rent, put food on the table, and that has expired. And then we end up with some states, which are largely in the South, which is related to structural racism and the way that uh, race impacts uh, social insurance and safety nets and solidarity, um, where payments are very small. So sometimes as small as uh, $200 a week. Um, And so trying to make a living on that at this time. So really focused in on some of the issues that are facing workers right now for 2020. So with the first um, CARES Act package in the spring, sort of jumping off of what Rebecca was just talking about, we saw the Trump administration and Congress doing a whole bunch of things it kind of had never done before. Um, Now, of course, with most of those provisions expired and Congress apparently not interested in doing anything else, what did we learn sort of from that first aid package and what was possible and what is still maybe impossible? Can I throw this one back to Rebecca because I feel like this is, you know, coming off of what you were just talking about? Sure. One of the things we learned um, is that it's not too hard to to change policy to include workers who have been left out. So part of the UI provisions was to include uh, 
gig workers, independent contractors, and the self-employed in the UI program. And, you know, historically, they haven't been included in the UI program. And it's important to know that those areas where work can sometimes be more precarious are growing for workers of color. And so it is possible to actually include those workers in the unemployment insurance system. So how do we hold on to that going forward um, is important. And it's also, uh, you know, possible to give $600 extra a week and $600 works out to $15 an hour. So I think that, that those are openings that show us what is possible when we are operating from a space of abundance and not uh, austerity. What we learned, as some younger activists said, is that the government can no longer ever again claim there's not enough money. They produced the money. They had the money. There was a desperation. The second thing we learned is that there really is a genocidal gene in capitalism and that at a, that at a certain moment, the uh, dominant ruling circles, particularly but not limited to the extreme right, are willing to let people die. And they will do it comfortably. I don't mean die comfortably, let people die and feel comfortable about it. And, and we're seeing this, and, and in part, what happened is, uh, or at least it appears what happened, is that when Trump and the Republicans figured out there was a disproportionate number of people of color and poor whites that were dying, they figured, okay, fine. And that's all of a sudden when they start to insist on austerity. We see right now what McConnell is doing. And I was on a call the other day, and I just said, you know, there should be like a thousand cars that converge on McConnell's home and just surround his home and keep honking until he goes completely bananas. We cannot sit back and just say, there's nothing really we can do. I mean, it just it's, it's absurd. People are going to be evicted. People are going to be dying of starvation. And it's like we act like you know, shit happens. And that grim note, um, the uh, um, one of the things that the pandemic has really um, exposed is and, and exacerbated to some extent is this divide between uh, those who we call so-called essential workers or frontline workers and people who um, have the privilege of perhaps working from home or at least uh, being somewhat uh, protected from uh, exposure to uh, the ongoing public health crisis. And um, I wanted to um, ask if... Uh, if um, you know how you think um, the uh, pre-existing inequalities and inequities that were fundamental in the labor force um, have been sort of exploded by the pandemic, and do you think these changes will uh, end up becoming permanent even after the pandemic subsides, which hopefully will happen at some point? Yeah, I think that the you know going back to the four categories that I was describing earlier, um, uh, I. I think that this um, year really just exposed uh, the most grotesque underbelly that is the capitalist system as we understand it in the United States. I mean, when I am on the phone with trade union leaders from, you know, United Food and Commercial Workers um, who tell me that they're going to members' um, funerals, you know, it's a really intense experience to to visually see how little 
of a shit capitalist care at all about workers. Um, and I, so I think on the one, the thing that's really intense is that on the one hand, it was, it's become really explicit this year. I mean, you just look to back to Bill's point, like literally just look at them deciding farm workers, you can die. Uh, grocery store clerks who are feeding us, you can die. You know, DoorDash, whatever, delivery people, y'all can die in service of our needs. Uh, and then in the same breath, you know, basically say, we don't have to pay you. You don't need personal protective equipment. Um, just nothing. Uh, so I think it is, I mean, I feel like there's this, there's this, there's a very um, interesting line we're going to walk heading into like the post pandemic moment, which is on the one hand, I think a lot of workers, even more workers than normal are um, freaked out, pissed off, angry, want change, want it now. And, and that's a little bit tempered by something as an organizer that I'm, I'm mindful of, which is they're also exhausted, mentally spent, emotionally trashed. And so the idea that we're going to have like a quick uh, militant revolution coming off the pandemic, I think has to be a little bit tempered by the reality that people need a nap. They need to have funerals and weddings and cry. Um, and it's really intense out there. But I, but I do, I do feel hopeful that in the aftermath of people taking a bit of a break um, when they're allowed to do so, um, I think there's going to be a hell of a lot of retribution to pay. That's my goal in life, is that some shareholders and a whole lot more people are going to pay. And the far right that Bill's discussing, but like at the top of the decision-making ladder, the far right are enablers of like a certain set of politics. But the Mitch McConnells and the, and the Elon Musks um, of, and the Jeff Bezoses of this world, I, I think that this pandemic, again, I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but I think that we're going to see an opening to uh, a level of strike activity and worker organizing that I am hopeful um, is going to be bigger than it has been in my lifetime. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think that it's incumbent, going back to a comment Bill made early on, I think it's really incumbent upon you know, every one of us to sort of like force the trade union movement to rise to the occasion of the moment that we're in, because they are not there right now. They are not there yet. And the question is, how much heat from the base is going to come to force a different national politics in a set of trade unions that know effing better about the quietness with which they have approached this moment? So, yes, it's a grotesque year and there's going to be a hell of a lot to pay for it, I think, if we do our work right in a good way. Uh, anyone else want to chime in on uh, sharpening those pitchforks? I, I mean, as usual, I agree with Jane. Um, and, uh, but I, I would say that at the level of strategy, there's a few things that we got to be thinking about. One is, uh, understanding that there is not a Trumpist movement out there. There's a right-wing populist movement out there. As, uh, my wife said very well, um, Trump is the rattler on the tail of the rattlesnake. He is not the rattlesnake. The rattlesnake has been going through the body politic for a while and has been injecting poison into the system. Trump is the rattler. He's the noise. There's a deep movement and a long history to right-wing populism in the United States. And we're going to have to be figuring out how to take this up 
because our enemy, just as with when people had to go up against the Nazis, is not simply the people at the top. There is an army of people, some of whom might in other circumstances be very nice people who are demonic, and they want to annihilate us. And I don't mean that euphemistically. They wish to annihilate us. So part of the progressive movement really has to be, going back to something Jane was raising, we have to do a very intense internal education, but we also have to be thinking about how do we fight for power and power on multiple levels. Uh, I think everything from uh, a transformation in the way we think about workplace power, but also electoral power, and not just about electoral turnout, but we have to be asking ourselves some questions. How do we take over Texas? How do we take over Florida? Not how do we you know, jump on a particular person's campaign, but how do we build a progressive pro-working class force that actually can begin to win power? Because if we're not talking about fighting for power, we might as well just pass out the joints and call it a day because none of it will make any difference. Rebecca, did you want to, um, perhaps adding from a perspective of someone who works with workplace protections and benefits, you can sort of talk about the uh, how inequality has been affected or those underlying inequalities have been affected by the pandemic? Sure. One of the biggest things we've seen is uh, an awareness that um, that the workers who are most likely to be deemed essential but treated as disposable are workers of color. But that's not new. That's like been forever. And those workers have always had the highest injury rates, the highest fatality rates. And, you know, even, uh, you know, up into the 20th century, uh, dirty and dangerous jobs were called Negro work. Like that was just what it was. And so if you just pull that thread through to now, that's who we're seeing who are working in food processing and supermarkets and warehouses and nursing homes and who are getting sick and dying when it's preventable. And so I think uh, understanding what's at stake and now that the, the light is on for this, like, what do we do about it? It's a crisis, but also there's an opportunity. Um, and, you know, I agree with the panelists without power, we can be aware of these disparities and aware of all of this, but we can't change it. if We don't have power to make the change happen. So following from that, and and Jane touched on this a little bit, but how have sort of labor organizers specifically met the challenges of trying to reach workers at all in this moment of social distancing? And how have unions responded to these challenges? Um, And obviously that is a different question for different unions, but maybe, don't know if any of you have sort of things you think have been done well and things you think that have been done badly and whether you want to name names or not. I mean, I, I think I, I can just, um, and I can, uh, on the po- in the Department of Positive for a moment, um, you know, I think that one of the things that I did uh, three days into like the declaration of the COVID pandemic um, was, was say yes to a series of emails from people at the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung in Germany saying, um, hey, Jane, can you uh, teach an international class in multiple languages and we'll put it together in three days if you say yes um, and the point of saying yes to that, even though I was like, I'm exhausted. No, what are you talking? Huh? What? You know, the quick reaction was just like sort of um, 
you know, going into soldier mode, right? Like, which I think this is a war and there are moments when I get into soldier mode and they've been fairly constant in 2020. Um, and soldier mode was sort of like, yeah, step up to the plate right this second and do everything you can. And the, the primary reason to have done that, that course that we did called COVID and everything beyond it was to say immediately to everybody, this is not a time to stop organizing. This is a time to not just continue organizing, but to organize like mad crazy and that we can do it, that we can actually adapt the skills. We can go online. We can do role plays. We can teach, teach. We can talk, talk. Working with 12 unions I was working with, still I'm working with in California, the education sector. We, you know, people were sort of like, oh, everyone's going to be home. What do we do? And we were like, immediately, immediately, we have to pivot very quickly to teaching every site-based leader, every chapter leader, every school leader to knowing how to run a Zoom, how to do it, how to get the chapter together, how to hold mobilization, how to win an MOU, Memorandums of Understanding on Distance Learning, how to demand safe reopening of schools, how to point out the disparities of like poor school districts starved of the revenue question forever that have no windows opening, no heat systems, no air conditioning, no ventilation, no goddamn running water, no soap, no nothing you would need to run the basics of a school system in a pandemic, just for starters. So I think that there are a set of unions, at least the ones I'm working with, who rose to the occasion and said, oh, hell yes, we're going to keep organizing. We're going to make the pivot. How do we do it? What do we do? We were like running like Zoom crazy trainings in the month of March with every union I work with saying, do not fall to sleep right now. Get more active and go. And I know that, I mean, it was happening across a whole, United Food and Commercial Work, and a whole bunch of you, local by local, let me just say for everyone, you know, obviously local by local, not with the national unions now, but like there were a ton of locals um, who rose to the occasion, started organizing, kept organizing and won a bunch of stuff early on, at least in California and beyond, like what began to win things right away because they did not see the pandemic as a time to stop. Now, that's a different story for the national labor movement. And I, we should come back to that uh, question very soon, but I'll pause on my positive note about a bunch of locals um, and a bunch of workers who are not yet in locals who are rising to the occasion of figuring out how to try and organize and mobilize under a pandemic um, and good for them that we need to have a lot more of it. Yeah, I want to add to that. Um, National Nurses United, the New York State Nurses Association, uh, I mean, I think really jumped out there from the very beginning in this pandemic and and putting the issue not only of what uh, first responders and medical personnel were facing, but also uh, the broader public. Uh, I've done a lot of work with UFCW Local 21 in Seattle, which has also been out there uh, fighting on behalf of its members and uh, the public, but also taking up other issues like the issue of racial justice, because that's the other thing about the last number of months um, that particularly after the murder of, of uh, George Floyd, that it there has been a response not just in the general social justice movement, but including within labor, of a number of unions stepping forward, uh, taking very courageous stands in many cases, and in additional. Uh, additionally, some that actually did more than taking public stands, but actually doing things. Uh, and one of the things that they learned was that there was right-wing pushback within their own ranks that I think came as a surprise to many of these organizations. But it was the direct result of years of failing to pay attention 
to issues of race and gender, of right-wing populism. And so they took these stands, and then there was pushback. Uh, but organizations in the labor movement uh, across the country have been uh, trying, albeit belatedly, to try to tackle some of these issues around racial justice. And, and I think that this is, this is excellent. But to go to the national level, we're not getting the kind of leadership that's necessary. And we're witnessing fragmentation. A few years ago, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union decided to withdraw from the AFL-CIO. This year, the International Longshoremen's Association on the East Coast decided to withdraw. During the elections, uh, both this time and last, you had a tendency of uh, various unions to just to go it alone, or particularly with the bigger unions, to set up their own coalitions and to bypass central labor councils and state federations. And this is not good. This is, uh, this is something that looks like uh, this whole thing is falling apart because at the center, there is not a respect for the leadership that's necessary. And I don't mean respect at a moral level. I mean, there's no feeling that there is a strategic plan that organized labor needs to take up in this moment that addresses the extent of the crisis. And on top of that, there is fear, I think, within much of the leadership of the movement as a whole, that if you really take up the crisis at the level it has to, you're going to be red-baited because there are need, there's a real need for radical solutions. Bill, one of these days I'm going to convince you to write that book about the communist and the labor movement. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I've been nagging him for years one. about this. Everybody needs to tell Bill that they would buy the heck out of that book. And I, Rebecca, I, I did you <laughs> did you want to jump in on this? Um, so I would just say that I'm inspired by workers who are erupting in these pockets of whether or not they have a union to demand their rights to a healthy and safe workplace, um, going up against big ones like Amazon. Um, and there's a lot of organizing and excitement around that. And we need, you know, to be able to protect workers from retaliation. We need to have strong protection for workers in the next uh, uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration that's coming up. Um, so we need to join together with these workers and support them and make it easier for them to push for their rights um, rather than leave them hanging with retaliation. And staying in the uh, Department of Positivity, um, I wanted to ask if our panelists felt that there were some silver linings that had surfaced um, amid the pandemic in terms of, do you think the pandemic has had kind of a galvanizing effect on either how workers organize or how uh, the political conversation around labor and workers' rights has really come to the fore in our um, in our public discourse, maybe? Um, do you feel like the pandemic has at least shed some light and, and drawn some political attention to issues like occupational safety or uh, exploitation in the care work sectors? Um, or do you feel like these issues continue to be ignored? I share the optimism that Jane has. I mean, I actually am optimistic, but I know that may sound surprising for some people, but I actually am optimistic. But I worry that if we don't tackle the issue of right-wing populism 
that part of what's going to happen is that the right wing is going to try to seize on some of these issues and rearticulate them in a very reactionary way, much as the Nazis did in Germany in the 1930s. We, we have to understand that, that the trade union movement is not the only movement that's operating within the working class, and it is not a monolithic movement either, and that there are right-wing solutions to this crisis that are regularly being articulated, and we've got to do something to shut that down in order to succeed. Yeah, I mean, I obviously uh, couldn't agree more. Um, and I, you know, I think I've, I've hinted at this only, I think, in one piece I've written so far, because frankly, it's been such a ridiculously paced last couple of years, it's hard to stop and find the time. But I spent a lot of 2019 working uh, in Germany. Um, so pre pandemic, I spent a lot of 2019 actually working in Germany. Um, with progressives in the trade union movement in Germany, um, concentrated in two, you know, the biggest unions in Germany, which means in the world at this point, because the rest are shrinking. Um, and, uh, you know, I was blown away um, by how present the conversation is about fascism and Nazis and how successful um, the movement is spreading. And there was uh, a moment when I was leading a training, I was going uh, into Yina, getting closer and closer to the Polish-German border um, in some big auto plants where I went to do a training. And uh, to a person, when I did the standard, you know, with my translator or standards, you know, give me your name and one reason why you came to this training, like a day-long skills training. Um, and I've never had what I had happen in that room happen. And I feel like it's prepared me more for 2020 in the United States, quite frankly, which was one organizer after another saying, yeah, I'm here to learn how to be more successful um, at talking to workers than the Nazis in our plant, because the Nazis are actually having more success than the trade unions right now, um, because the Nazis are running a rap about what real Germans deserve and that they're going to take the workers out on strike to win. Right. So there's like a framing of the choice that the right wing um, is not at all afraid to frame. And our side is frankly pretty shitty at this point about actually understanding the basic skills of how do you listen to a worker and frame the choice. Um, and I had a sense of urgency that day in that one training in Germany that has not left me for one second straight through the election that we just had in this country and everything in between, because um, it is real in a really serious way. And, and what's real about it is Back to the Department of Positivity from such a grim topic of the far right, the radical right, and its relationship to every damn thing right now, I think we can beat those son of a bitches. And I think that even in the work we were doing in Germany, we began to beat them. So what we have to get our head out of is this idea that, you know, we don't need a strategy. We don't need a power analysis. We don't need a skill set to do it. Like there is a skill set. There is a focus on power. There's a bunch of work we have to do to beat these people, but beat them we can. Uh, but we better not underestimate it. And we better not have the sort of wishful thinking that, you know, anything we say is going to work because it's not. Rebecca, I, I, I know that uh, the the issues that NELP is in, has been uh, shouting and screaming about for the last, you know, however many decades um, are now finally in the public conversation, like at the forefront of the public conversation. So do you find that uh, hopeful? I do find it hopeful. And I think I find it hopeful because it's being paired with people understanding that they need to step into their power to, to see a change. And I think that when, when you're working on these issues and they're not at the forefront, there's people who are always suffering, 
But now the suffering is cutting deeper and wider. And so there's a hope that that will energize folks and activate them. Um, like Jane was saying, maybe after they've dealt with the most emergencies, on urgent emergencies. But I, I do feel like um, this is this is the moment and the time for folks to get activated around what changes need to take place. For me, obviously, I think the biggest silver lining this year was the just massive, massive explosion of the movement for Black Lives once again. Um, and this came at a moment when unemployment was really high, but the benefits were still working. Like the people, the extended unemployment was still in effect. People were still in the process of getting those $1,200 checks. Um I would love to hear what all of you think about the connections between those things and what labor can learn from the BLM organizing and protests that happened this year and why it still often seems to be resistant to learning those lessons. Well, you know, sorry, there's a number of things here. One um, is that the response to the George Floyd murder was remarkable on so many levels, and not the least being that uh, it was not an exclusively black response. And I think that that took many of us uh, by surprise, that it was certainly black led, but it was very mixed in terms of who was there, and which was a wonderful sign and something that actually should inspire organized labor. Uh, it was also something that received an amazing amount of good public support, uh, pretty consistently, despite a number of attempts to, to undermine that. Now, that said, it was also the case, I think we could see, that the right wing was inspired by the mobilization. Uh, they were inspired by a different racial narrative. And, and uh, in some ways, what Trump did was to channel Richard Nixon, from 1968, and positioned himself as the advocate for law and order and against civil unrest. Uh, but the, the movement, um, it went farther than most people had anticipated. And it's one of the things about movements that's interesting. You, you'll never know when they're going to emerge. You never quite know how they're going to emerge. You do know that they will emerge. So Prior to George Floyd's murder, there had been two or three other murders that took place that did not meet with the same kind of response. And then click, something happened. And what I think that that should teach us is actually why we have to build organizations. Because you can't rely on spontaneous eruptions. You need organization. You need organization to take and pursue issues that arise out of spontaneous motions. And one of those uh, sets of organizations are the unions. Um, but I go back to, there is, there is this fear within much of organized labor that to join the rabble will result in them being discredited and that whatever gains they believe that they've made and relationships that they believe that they have established with capital, with the state, will evaporate. Uh, th this fear, it, there's probably no one that will say it 
directly as such, but it's very power. You you can taste it, um, and I think we've got to get past that in order for organized labor to embrace the lessons from something like the Black Lives Matter movement. I do think that, uh, and this is not. It, it, it isn't it. It isn't, it isn't specific to the specific question and the, and the discussion. I just want to continue bringing it out a little bit. Um, you know, the outrageous ongoing murder um, of black people and Latinos and more um, in this country by armed forces uh, sanctioned by the state, um, you know, is, is, an, is, is deeply ill, sick, sickening and uh, should um, continue to incite the kind of reaction that we had to the George Floyd murder. But I think that there are a set of issues that relate to poverty and to racism that the trade union movement at the national level, and frankly, at a lot of local levels in this case, have been missing the boat on for like a really long time. And a central one is housing Um, and the fight around eviction and mortgage crisis and generally the fight for really decent, affordable housing in this country. I just think is one that it's such an obvious one for unions to work on that begins to bridge the gap. And in every city where I have ever worked very hard to blur the lines between the workplace and the community, the central issue is always around housing Um, because uh, workers need housing. And quite frankly, the disproportionate number of people of color who are the people to lose their housing first and or to not have good housing in this country um, is, is a bridge into working very systematically on race and racism issues in the ranks in a way that should become that should be that should feel less threatening to leaders who shouldn't feel threatened anyway but it should feel less threatening and it backs you into a set of issues around larger questions in society that matter a hell of a lot and that I think it's inexcusable at this point and almost like beyond my comprehension that trade unions continue to not understand how to run hard at the housing crisis in this country, call it a union issue, in addition to what Rebecca keeps raising in a really good way, which is organizing around occupational safety and health issues. I mean, the the sort of housing and occupational safety and health issues that are sitting out there that intersect intensely with race and gender um, and class in our movement are like just waiting for us to do something. And people are doing it locally, but at the national level, we're still, frankly, are not seeing anywhere near um, the level of action that we need at the national level. And I think it is the old, you know, confusion on the part of national labor leaders that access to the White House equals power. And that is one of the most misconstrued understandings uh, of all time. And we're seeing it again already um, as people, you know, beg uh, for access um, to the incoming administration. And uh, the people who disobeyed the Valerie Jarrett's of the Obama uh, Biden tenure were the queer rights movement and the immigrants' right movement. They said, we don't, we're not going to follow your damn protocols of being polite. And they're the two movements that won substantial gains under Obama. And that needs to be the lesson about going into the Biden administration, frankly. That's right. And this issue about housing, I, I just want to, I want to uh, point that Jane, this is the work that Jane was doing when I first met her in Stanford, Connecticut with the Stanford Organizing Project. And it's an example that I always point to about the way that the trade union movement can be a a movement for um, uh, economic justice, true movement for economic justice, and building the kind of alliances that need to be made. And 
And unfortunately, the national trade union movement did not look at what happened in Stanford as an example to replicate around the country. So we're going to start our Q&A round. And the first question, uh, these, are, these are all the questions that were submitted by audience members. Um, so the first question is from Mark Schaefer. It's actually a two-part question. So um, I guess I'll ask both parts now and you guys can divvy it up how you want to. Um, question number one, uh, is there any data for this election comparing voting patterns of union households uh, with non-union working class households? And the second question is, does anyone have a strategy for counteracting the influence of right-wing talk radio, especially on working-class white voters? All I've seen is that approximately 40% of union households uh, went with Trump, which was basically what we were talking about in 2016. Uh, in most elections, the Republican vote in union households is somewhere between 25 and 30%. So this was uh, an increase over that, although not a dramatic increase over that. Um, the second question though, I, I would say that I have been in so many discussions in the unions where people say, we have to do something to counter Fox News. We need our own station. And uh, the reality is we're not going to have one. The second reality, which I think is really important, which is very fundamental, is that the oppressed never have more resources than the oppressor. I mean, Jesus did not have more resources than the Romans. I mean, let's just be real. So once you realize that, then you realize that you have to have a different kind of approach that is not going head to head with the other side in the same way. We're not going to be able to get the resources to get an anti-Fox. There will be uh, media outlets that you can access from time to time, whether it's MSNBC, Al Jazeera, whoever, but it's not going to be head-to-head. -head. So we've got to be thinking very creatively about how to move our messages. And that includes um, a much more strategic use of social media, uh, using programs such as yours here. Um, I think that we have to try as best we can to develop echo chambers around the country, progressive echo chambers, which the right wing, the right wing is very good at developing echo chambers. We're not so good. We do like an occasional op-ed and applaud, but we don't really develop strategically how to move echo chambers. So we have to have a communication strategy that's operating on multiple levels in order to beat back the other side. I mean, I uh, just want to put my regular plug in for replacing pollsters with organizers in the national labor movement. Uh, but I'm serious about that. I mean, there really has been a, there really has been a market drop in the number of actual organizers in the trade union movement. Um, and I think that their replacement um, with, you know, highly compensated um, sort of messaging firms uh, has been an abject failure, uh, quite frankly. Um, and I think the one thing that's always interesting to me is when I say things like, let's go back on the doors, let's go back to basic grassroots organizing in strategic labor markets, in strategic sectors, right? We have to be, like make some cuts somewhere in there. 
there's, I think there's just this, there's this myth, um, which is that organizing takes a long time. And I, I, I don't buy it from my life experience. I think that focused strategic resources in strategic sectors, in strategic labor markets, and a, and a return to a re-embrace of like people going on the doors in huge numbers when the pandemic ends um, is really vital to puncture through uh, the kind of media war that I agree with Bill, we're never going to match them, right? So, and there is nothing quite like two things. Well, there's nothing quite like going on the doors, but for what purpose, right? We don't just go on the doors to be like, hey, members, how you doing? Hey, workers, how's life? You know, like, that's not what I mean. I mean, like, aggressively running campaigns, including strikes um, and framing, uh, framing the need for urgent conversations um, on the doors and, you know, in the break rooms, on the shop floor and on the doors um, in a way that's really intense. uh, And that can immediately puncture a conversation can immediately puncture sort of the Fox news, social media um, in a way like nothing I've ever experienced. And if we turn up the volume in a very serious way, which we have, we've been turning down the volume on organizing my entire lifetime. If we actually turned it up in a real way, um, you would see how quickly whole labor markets can change. Um, I mean, I've been involved in a number of whole labor market campaigns that over the course of two to three years, period, two to three years, period. Like everything can change from who becomes a city council, how many workers get unionized, how much housing is saved, how much gentrification is beat. Um, right down the line. So organizing doesn't have to take a long time. It has to take, it requires resources and discipline and massive training. Um, And there's an army of workers out there who are ready to do the work if we would sort of just enable them. Um, So I'm looking at all these questions and trying to sort of consolidate things because we've got a few themes that are coming up in a lot of people's um, questions. And one of them is this question of electoral work versus um, organizing on the shop floor and the question of, of these sort of top-down labor policy questions about like what we need to do is get the Biden administration to do X or pass this law versus we're not going to get anywhere with things like sectoral bargaining without actually having um, some more power. And so that's me sort of trying to smash three people's different questions into one place. But jumping off of what Jane was just saying, I think it's a good place to introduce that, to say, like, how do we think about these things, if you will allow me to be a little bit pretentious, sort of dialectically, that they feed into each other rather than we have to do organizing or we have to do electoral work or we have to do policy work or whatever. It's just not either or. You know, the dis- the debate on the left about electoral versus shop floor organizing is just uh, we just have to retire it. Um, we have to do serious amounts of shop floor organizing. Um, then we have to connect the shop into the broader community through the lives of the workers because they live in communities, generally speaking. And then we have to take the extraordinary organizing work we're doing at the shop floor level into the community, into the voting booth. I just, it's just, it's, it's all of the above. Um, It's not um, either or. And to the, to the question of, because you raised one of my favorite topics, the word sectoral bargaining, I just have to say um, back to like my time in Germany, part of what I learned doing a lot of work in Germany, where they have, you know, this huge national sectoral bargaining, which is sort of the flavor of the month for how to save the working class in the United States from some of the national unions um, it just doesn't, it doesn't work, whether it's in Germany, the United States, Argentina or Uruguay or any place else that sectoral bargaining exists, unless 
workers are being, unless workers are organizing, unless workers are on strike, unless workers are building power, unless there's actually power being built that forces anything different in the actual sectoral uh, bargain. So um, I got really, you know, part of why I was interested in spending so much time in Germany was to really dive into this issue of sectoral bargaining. Um, and now I can say I have. So um, the idea that it's a panacea uh, for solving problems of low wage work is crazy. It's not like it's a bad idea. Like so many things, though, in the United States, the way it's being discussed um, is frankly not very helpful. So the concept is a good one. Um but it, it's, it's as if it's a way for national labor leaders to talk even less to workers, um, as opposed to having to talk even more to workers and engage them and give them agency in the bargaining process. Um, and I'm trying to look at, I'm trying to finish a report right now that's going to contrast like Argentina to Germany in terms of how that sectoral bargaining work happens, because not surprisingly, it's actually the global south where I think it's happening in a more interesting way. Um, than it is in Europe, where we're borrowing the sort of idea of the German model, which I just have to say uh, is so top down. There's so little worker involvement um, in the process of actually, you know, winning that they're not winning very much anymore, including the most recent settlement in the public sector. I mean, I'm tracking a lot of the sectoral bargaining right now um, in Germany, and it's just not producing very much, which is why the Nazis are winning elections for works council seats inside of plants in Germany right now, because they're running a better rap uh, than the damn unions are who are being conflict averse um, in the way that a lot of national unions in the US are. So it's not electoral versus shop floor. Shop floor builds the mobilization power that we need to then go into the electoral arena. So I generally agree with that, but I have a slightly different angle. The um... One of the things that I and my co-author in Solidarity Divided, Fernando Gapacin, have pushed is the notion of a working people's agenda. And that there needs to be a working people's agenda in politics about what it is, what, what would it mean for working people to have power in these different states, in our different municipalities? What's going to be different? And that's not the same thing as the legislative agenda of this or that union. But what are the key things? Jane mentioned about housing. Uh, you, you, you could go on and on, environmental issues. Um, so that's point one. The second thing is something I raised earlier um, about fighting for power. So the background for me is this. I was in Texas a few years ago giving a speech, and uh, people were talking about how bad the situation was in Texas. And they just were going on and on. I couldn't take it. So then they asked me, so like, okay, so what should we do? And I said, well, well, how do we take over Texas? And they looked at me like I was nuts, completely nuts. I said, no, I'm serious. I mean, how do we take it over? What are the key cities? What are the counties that we need and don't need? What are the key social movements? Who are the key opinion makers? Does anyone have a plan for this? This is what I feel like uh, progressive forces need to be grappling with around the country. And when you're looking at those social movements, how does an electoral effort unite with different social movements? Not try to replace them, but unite with them. I think this is what we need to be talking about because this is in effect what the right wing did, but from the other angle. 
beginning in the late 60s with their, the rebuilding of the so-called New Right and their objective, which was multi-decade, to annihilate us. Um, and we should learn a few things from that. One of the things that is picking up steam right now is workers who are in the gig economy um, organizing and pushing back against being qualified or classified as independent contractors, which means they don't have benefits, they don't have sick leave, they don't have unemployment benefits, um, lots of the key things you need right now. Um, and I think that um, part of what needs to happen with policy campaigns is this idea of moving from just policy to policy plus power. So where do we start in something that we're trying to win that's going to bring in the workers and, and get their interests? So sort of like what Jane was saying about housing, like what is it that workers are interested in that can bring them in where they can win a victory that leads them to believe they have power to win another victory, to win another victory? And I think um, really starting to figure out how uh, we connect policy with building power um, is, is the work for where we go from here. I'm going to try to, again, roll some of the uh, Q&A questions into one question. Uh, we've got a, a number of questions um, from individuals trying to get some advice, perhaps from some seasoned organizers, about um, what they can do in their own workplace. Um, one person asked, what can someone who's interested in organizing but has no experience with it do to get involved? Um, and uh, another uh, person talked about uh, considering going back to school to become a nurse um, after hearing talk uh, about the need for young progressives to take jobs in certain strategic sectors. So I guess it's a question about um, sort of how to salt a workplace and, um, and in general, um, just how people perhaps with uh, limited time and resources uh, can try to um, inspire the workers they work alongside every day uh, to take collective action, um, or just to uh, sort of avoid alienation, maybe uh, create a, a better sense of solidarity in their own workplace, particularly if they're, say, working remotely in this age of social distancing? You know, I think a few things. One is, uh, just quickly, a real answer to that question is, don't do it alone. <laughs> do it, but don't do it alone um, in your workplace. Uh, second real opinion is, um, you know, I think that all workers uh, can organize, actually, but there is serious skill um, involved in the work. And we make a mistake when we don't actually believe that, uh, because it might seem easy um, until the union busters show up. Uh, and for a lot of the workers in the gig economy that I am talking to, I will leave any of their sectors uh, out of the conversation here. Um, for many of them, it was a shocking realization to go from sort of like thinking they were organizing around, you know, gender or fill in the blank issues, um, only to realize that, you know, IRI Inc. or any number of serious union busters were going to soon after show up and begin dividing and ripping apart the campaigns that they were working on. So we need to not be naive that it requires some serious skill to take on some serious consultants um, in, in organizing your workplace. It really depends if you're in the public sector, the private sector, it depends what sector that you are in. It, you know, there's a lot of things that it depends on. But um, I think one thing people can do is look for at the Rosa Luxemburg Stiff Tongue, Organizing for Power. Like I'm now committed with a whole bunch of organizers to running multiple series a year 
that Rosa Luxemburg is underwriting that are free, um, which is why I think almost 4,000 people took the last class. Uh, it's not easy to get really serious online training um, that doesn't cost you anything. And we're doing it because we believe in it and that there's a lot of workers out there who need some basic training. So do it. Don't do it alone. Uh, don't do it naively, but definitely do it um, and commit to getting some basic skills training from any number of places, including uh, organizing for power. But, uh, you know, I think there is an endless room for organizing right now. Um, and I do think that uh, workers by the tens of thousands need to take it up. Um, but you also need to have just a little, a little, a little bit um, of training to do it. Um, and there are definitely places out there, including the the workshop series that I've been running. Any other advice for young organizers? I mean, the, you know, there's, I believe the Organizing Institute still exists at the AFL-CIO. There's a number of uh, community-based organizations uh, that provide training. I think that Jane's point is so important. When I started um, in the labor movement, I was, I was doing in-shop organizing in a shipyard. No one trained me. I was a former student organizer. Um, and it was rough. Uh, when I actually became a paid organizer, I never received training. It was the worst possible entrance into any movement because th there really is a science to organizing. And, and it's, it's important to, to, to learn from people that are skilled at it, even if you disagree, but to learn the basic lessons. And uh, and all too often, uh, people get brought in and they are um, they they end up very disillusioned. The other thing I would say is that it's that it's important for for individuals to to identify where they think that they can make the most uh, of a contribution in a movement for social justice. For some people, it would be organizing. Not everybody has the personality to do it. Uh, and, and there's different kinds of organizing. There's some, like I, I, I'm actually quite shy. It's very hard for me to go up to someone I don't know and start a conversation. I can speak in front of a million people, but it's very hard for me to do that. And that's important to understand about yourself when you're making these decisions. We need researchers. Uh, we, need, we need administrative personnel. The movement needs all of these things in order to go forward. And so people shouldn't do any of this for guilt. They should do it because it's what they want to do, and they feel this pull to go in that direction. Otherwise, they won't last. I think there, there are a few of the last questions that came in. Um, in terms of national labor policy, what are the top one or two things we should be advocating for? Uh, another person asked, um, the average number of workers organized for successful union election over the past decade has been small. Um, you know, how do we scale this up uh, to reverse labor's decline? Um, I guess maybe I can ask this as a broad question. I mean, what are, what are things that should change about uh, the way labor law operates, the way it is written, maybe the way the NLRB, the future NLRB, um, which we'll be getting under Biden, uh, should be interpreting that. Um, I guess, uh, Rebecca, this seems to be in your wheelhouse, given that it's in the title of your organization. So maybe you want to start us off. 
I think we've had a concerted effort to make it impossible to organize. Um, and so really getting in there and fixing some of the things that are, you know, most preventing uh, workers from being able to organize. Um, there is a piece of legislation, the PRO Act, and the PRO Act may not go far enough, but that is one piece of, of legislation that's out there in terms of trying to restore bargaining power uh, to workers, um, you know, making sure that there's uh, stronger remedies when employers interfere with worker rights, um, more freedom to organize without employer interference, and, you know, really being able to protect strike activity and other activity. Um, so really getting in there and changing the way the law works so that it's not stacked against workers. Fire Peter Rob. Sorry, I want to say that again. Um, I actually do think that one of the first things that has to happen, that would be that would be an amazing sign if it if it did happen. And I'm, I'm not holding my breath uh, for this, by the way. But Peter Robb is the most vicious anti-worker general counsel leader of the National Relations Board that we've ever had, at least in my lifetime. Um, and I think there's a really strong case for Biden to fire him, like if not the first day, like the first week he's in office. Um, to send a message across the bow that we're not going to take the kind of crap that was being dished out by um, by Peter Rupp, um for the last short period of time that he was at the agency. Um, and I want to really underscore what Rebecca said, though. I mean, I think um, I think for me, like re- restoring a real right to strike in the United States is probably the most fundamental single right. And I would link that to like the right to strike around occupational safety and health issues right now would be rather extraordinary. I don't for a minute think that we're going to pass any of that legislation in the short term. That's why I think, you know, if Biden um, could actually show, like inspire workers by firing um, Peter Robb at the National Relations Board, which is one key uh, entity that needs massive revamping um, to act boldly, um, and show that he's going to actually act boldly in defense of worker rights would be um, extraordinary. I happen to think, though, again, in the short term, I don't even think this is medium and long term. I think in the short and medium term, how unions organize going forward immediately by connecting the dots through workers to their connections in the community and their connections in the workplace and building simultaneous borderless power between the community and the workplace and strategic labor markets and strategic sectors probably leading to strikes um, is actually how we're going to have a better chance at being able to build the power to then pass um, the proactor elements of it, all of which would be delightful um, if they could pass. But I'm fairly obsessed about what's the power analysis for how we're going to take key labor markets and key sectors so that worker power can be built sufficient enough to sort of get closer to being able to enact the kind of legislation that Rebecca was, I think, very rightly outlining that would be really great for workers, right? It's like, how do we get there? Uh, it's like the chicken and egg question. And I think we're going to get there by illegal strikes, legal strikes, and a hell of a lot of strikes done well um, over, you know, by linking rent strikes to wage strikes to safety and health strikes to things that resonate with the broader community of which there are many, including safety and health issues. Um, I wanted to combine another couple of questions that we got here because I think these actually go together very well. One um, was, 
are there international or historical examples of how unions have overcome the infiltration of nationalistic and right-wing ideologies? And then the other question, building off what Bill keeps saying about Texas, um, was take over Texas also means govern Texas. How do we build a governing majority? Um, how do we do that? And I think that, of course, those are both related because they require fighting the right and right-wing ideology in order to actually get there. So, Bill, I guess I lined that up for you, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of um, fighting the right, there was a lot of experience in Europe between World War I and World War II. Um, and then there was um, a very big error that was made after World War II that had something to do, a combination of the Cold War as well as sort of bourgeois thinking. And it wasn't just restricted to the trade union movement. Uh, it was this idea of um, sort of an amnesty on fascists. Um, and this legitimized or re-legitimized right-wing forces who should have been completely like put on an island somewhere. Um, and this is something that's actually a legacy that we're dealing with to this day. Uh, but the, the your second question is something that I obsess on. And I think that the, the short answer is this. Building a governing majority starts with building a majority that can take power, a new majority. It begins with bringing together and creating a vision uh, with the right mix of social forces for, in this case, what Texas would look like. And, uh, and the, the different components of the block, the new majority block, have to see themselves in their political representative. So it's not the idea of electing a, um, a god. It's the idea of creating a coalition that's, that aims to take power and begin a dramatic restructuring of the state and advancing uh, in a very audacious way the objectives uh, that people have been looking for. One of the problems that progressive and left forces have around the world is winning and then governing based on the old precepts, you know, basically governing uh, in the current era based on neoliberalism. You had a disaster in France where a socialist was elected. There was great expectations uh, of what he would do. And then nothing. In fact, I shouldn't say nothing. He continued to govern based on neoliberalism. So there has to be a block that is committed to profound structural reforms, where there is a demonstrated effort on the part of the ruling group, this new, the elected leaders, to actually bring about the change that was promised, as opposed to making excuses as to why they can't, which leads to this other point, which is that once people are elected, there are all kinds of pressures on them to cool down their rhetoric and their practice. This happens whether it's in unions 
or elected office in, in states or cities or whatever. The way we have to counter that is uh, to cease believing that there should be anything called a honeymoon period. We should cease the idea of saying that uh, or trying to empathize with the difficulties that these elected people are facing. We've got to put immense pressure on them. I remember having a discussion with a labor union leader during the Obama years who was telling me, and this is no joke, that Obama had more important things to, to worry about than the issues that were arising out of his own union. And I looked at this guy in absolute horror. It's like, what? where do you go with that? What, what does that mean? You know, I mean, you're supposed to be representing hundreds of thousands of people. What does it mean that you're basically going to sit back and take a pass? Um, so we have to have a different view that basically says, as I've fond of saying, in this case, we stand a nose length behind Biden so that he can't turn around without running smack into us. We're sort of in the lightning round now. Uh, so I just wanted to um, give uh, Rebecca and Jane uh, a chance to address uh, that question um, and or uh, give us some final thoughts to conclude with. I think that, you know, we're in this moment of enormous crisis. We're actually seeing some people for the first time, how inequitable our society is, how important it is where you're located in the labor market, whether you can work from home, whether you have to go work and be at risk, whether you don't have a job right now. And I think that the only answer to fixing all of this stuff is collective action. And I think there's an opportunity um, inside of this crisis for all of us uh, to start working towards um, making sure that we don't let this crisis pass and leave um, people of color and women excluded in the ways that they were the last time we had a really deep downturn, which was the um, Great Depression and the New Deal. Like to make sure that that our jobs are to center the needs of workers of color to make sure they're not over in the margins and saying, we'll get you later, but making sure that their needs are centered and that we build the policy around that, which will make it better for all workers, but we're going to make sure that they are included and that their needs are handled. Yeah, that, uh, sorry, in addition to what Rebecca said, um, conveniently that lines up really well with my sort of um, focus on mission-driven sectors of the economy, uh, which are heavily women and, and women of color at that. Um, who coming out of this pandemic um, are going to have uh, a exhaustion and then b I hope rage um, and our ability to um, to me I guess and this goes this goes back to the question that someone was asking earlier about the the one person in their workplace and what do they do I mean you don't have to start in the workplace part of what I um, really want to bang the drum on it, it, you know uh, throughout the night if not for the ne next bunch of years is. We have to go back to erasing the line between the workplace and the community. Workers are workers. They're people. They have a set of issues in their lives that are troubling to them and deeply damning them, depending on who the worker is. Um, and to sort of bifurcate, you know, one organization works on this issue, you know, another organization works on that issue, isn't actually either meeting the power building needs of ordinary people in the society, um, nor is it actually the way people's brains work, right? Like I've got a series of crises I'm trying to figure out how to build my way out of them. I think the faster um, 
the faster and sooner we literally just take, you know, erasers and start erasing the line that we think that separates the workplace from the community, um, the faster we're going to get to building the kind of organizations that Bill was articulating, like organization building that's structured, that's measurable. Are we winning or are we losing? Whether it's building a tenant union, whether it's building a parent or student union around your K through 12 system, trying to save it, um, whatever it is, we got to have a hell of a lot more power. And, um, and that's going to take a lot of organizing. Um, and the, I guess the very last thing I'm going to say is all of that has to add up to the revenue question. Um, in a really big way. When Rebecca was starting out, or like all the way at the beginning of this uh, discussion tonight about unemployment insurance systems and how broken down they were state by state, and that literally the, the literal incapacity of states to actually even move money out, that's because of the deliberate destruction of the public sector, which is also women and people of color heavy, right, by the way. So I think, you know, I have been obsessing about the revenue question because I think for all the unions that have figured out how to strike again in the last few years, the next question is, can we can we win the revenue fight? Can we force taxes on the rich and corporations again um, in this country? Because if we can't win the revenue question through a combination of strikes and then policymaking that taxes the rich and the corporations again, we can't even get a goddamn unemployment check out the door to people, right? That's how broken by design the system is. And to win the revenue question is not a matter of writing good policy, though that helps. It's going to be a question of power. So erase the line between the workplace and the community, mix it up, build some power, make sure it's measurable, um, have a lot of yes and no uh, fights in your immediate future, because that's the only way you know, frankly, if you're winning versus if you have an interesting idea um, and do it fast and hard uh, because we ain't got no time to waste anymore. And we ain't got no time left on this panel. So um, thank you to everyone um, for this wonderful discussion. And um, I'm really glad that despite our socially distanced uh, circumstances right now, we were able to come together and, um, and yeah, have this exchange. Once again, thank you to everyone. Thank you to our panelists for the great discussion. Thank you to all of our attendees, our audience members. And if you enjoyed this event, um, please support our work by going to our Patreon and chipping in so that we can continue to do these events and put out this uh, content for free for everyone to learn from. So thanks again, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.